We're in James chapter 5 today, actually starting our last chapter in James. Um, when, when I first started this book, actually before we started, I was looking at trying to lay the passages out, and I didn't think it would take us months to get through five chapters, but it has, um, but, but I think it's beneficial. We're, we'll wind up uh, in July, uh, we'll be finishing it up. So this week we're in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, as we as we just continue on in that study. So let me read them, then we'll pray, and then we will dig in. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. I don't think any of us ever expect our money and treasure to do that to us, but It will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Well, Father, this is your word. Would you work through it today? Would you confront us as we need to be confronted? In the spirit of James' words here, would you use your spirit, by your spirit, prophetically confront us if we have trusted more in our wealth than in you? If we are clinging to riches instead of you. And for those that are yours, Father, that have wrestled in these things themselves, would you just lead us to gratitude that the pronouncements against these people are not the promises that we look forward to. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. We live in a time and a place that knows that money cannot, cannot buy happiness, right? There have been sociologists, psychologists, economists, and all kinds of other ists that have done studies to demonstrate that money will not buy you happiness. There's even a movie from the 80s that it can't buy you love, right? Like, well, maybe that's not exactly right. Maybe that's a song. Can't buy me love. That's the movie. Sorry, rabbit trail. Let's, Let's forget I said that. There's an article in Forbes magazine back from 2006 that demonstrates that one of these studies compared 400 of America's richest people to the Maasai people of East Africa. The Maasai are a very simple people. We might consider them primitive. They are, uh, they are not uh, fighting for promotions at work. They do not live a modern lifestyle. They have no running water. They have no, they have no uh, electricity. But the study finds that there is virtually no difference in their levels of satisfaction compared to these extremely rich Americans. In fact, the conclusion in the article would suggest that money must not be the source of our happiness if people without it can actually be happy. Another interesting point that this article makes, and in spite of its conclusion, is, is that even though money isn't responsible for our happiness, we haven't grown tired of testing that theory. Like, we tend to forget it. 
And let me just read a short excerpt. It's not, the, it's not long, just a short excerpt from it. Today, as cable shopping networks, and this is 2006, so maybe cable shopping networks aren't the thing now, but just remember the context. Today, as cable shopping networks bloom like kazoo, and I don't know what that is, we stuff our closets with grip and flip kitchen utensils, mixers with dough hooks, tan- tanzanite bracelets, and vanilla candles so rank they knock out power lines. We've got more shopping malls than churches. We spend more time staring at, in, in internet, at internet coupon sites than reading Shakespeare. We stomp on each other at 5 a.m. on Christmas Eve to snag that discounted laptop at Walmart. A store that now sells buckets of popcorn. Suggesting that shopping for Glade plug-in air fresheners is the entertainment equivalent to going to the movies. Simply put... When we see something we like that someone else has, we want it too. Even as adults, we're still playing that game as, you know, probably our, our kids are playing that game in the, in the toddler room right now where that, that toy is not desirable until another kid's playing with it. All of a sudden, it's meaningful to me. I must have it, right? We're still playing that game. In, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim, Tim Keller, dealing with our preoccupation for Uh, with money. Uh, He calls it greed. (laughs) Um, He quotes from German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche from the late 1800s. This is what Nietzsche writes or or says. What induces one man to use false weights and another to set his house on fire after after having insured it for more than its value? While three-fourths of our upper classes indulge in legalized fraud. What gives rise to all this? It is not real want, for their existence is by no means precarious. But they have urged on day but they are urged on day and night by terrible impatience at seeing their wealth pile up so slowly, and by an equally terrible longing and love for these heaps of gold. What once was done for the love of God is now done for the love of money, for the love of that which presents or for the love which at present affords us the highest feeling of power and a good conscience. How interesting that even back in the 1800s, a time we would consider a bit simpler, a bit more primitive than today, that people were still burning houses down after they'd insured them for more than they were worth. Isn't that, I mean, I thought that's something that was modern, like we just made that up in the last generation. No. We've been this greedy for generations. For all that's changed, (laughs) clearly some things have stayed the same. And can we not say the same thing about James's words in this passage? For as much as has changed from his writing of these words to our day to day, is there not still a lot the same? Is he not confronting rich folks? whose life is given to the pursuit and accumulation of as much wealth as they can get, who cheat and take advantage of others so that they can cling to, hold on to, and even grow their wealth. He is. Even then, even in this day, the love of money and the love of what money can buy had displaced the love for God and the love for neighbor which is near and dear to the heart of James, 
because he suggests over and over that it is near and dear to the heart of God who actually expects it of his people. James' point is this. Beware. Beware. If you give your life to accumulating the world's wealth, you can be sure it will end in misery, not joy. If you think that's not what he's saying, then let's just read this first verse in chapter 5 again. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, he is not pulling punches. He is, he is not holding back. He is proclaiming judgment on a people who have pursued wealth, who have given their life to the accumulation of riches. Now, before we go any further, I'm going to go ahead and qualify. I'm going to make one qualification. I'm going to say it now so that I don't have to say it again. He is not condemning riches. He is not saying that if you are wealthy, that immediately, automatically, that means that you are doomed to hell, that you need to go. He is not preaching a gospel of poverty. He is not saying that it's more righteous to be poor than it is to be wealthy. That is not what he's getting at. Instead, he is, he is confronting and actually calling out judgment, pro- prophetically prophesying against these people who have used wealth dishonestly, who have gained wealth dishonestly, and, and is absolutely addressing the heart of those in these dishonest pursuits and these dishonest uses. In fact, it's such a strong condemnation that it appears, and this isn't just my opinion, but this is the opinion of many people who I've read from and studied over these last few weeks, that in this paragraph, he has turned his attention away from Christians and is speaking to the one who is consumed, who is ruled by a love for money and wealth, and who has never really known or trusted God. In this passage, he is not calling them to practice the faith that they profess any longer. In this passage, he is not telling them or or, or commending upon them, encouraging them to practice and implement the wisdom from heaven. In this passage, he is not telling these people to repent and humble themselves before the Lord that they might be exalted by him. It seems that he's come to this point where he is addressing a people who by their actions have so clearly revealed their heart that they should beware. Because based on the condition of everything that can be observed, the promises that he's made to the church are not the things that they should look forward to. Instead of humbling themselves and being exalted, they should expect that if they continue in this way, they will face certain condemnation. If nothing changes about who they are, they shouldn't expect to to know that they are justified in faith, but they are condemned for their trust in money. If they continue in this path, This path that tells us in the wisdom of the world that you'll find joy if you have enough, or the one with the most toys, the one who dies with the most toys wins. That's worldly wisdom. You'll actually find out you have lost. 
Maybe, maybe these are some of the Christians that um, he makes reference to in chapter 2. Some of the Christians that were causing Christians to act with partiality. That, that would come into the church, associate with the church, and, and in their presence, because they're wearing fancy clothes and because they had a, a position in, in, in a socioeconomic, socioeconomic standing in their, in their city, maybe, maybe these Christians were we're associating with these rich folks, and maybe that's the rich folks that he is addressing. Maybe it's the cultural Christians that he's been calling out over and, and ensuring that, 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 that no, no person sitting inside the church in the, in, with, within reach of God's word and the proclamation of the gospel, maybe he's seeking to ensure that anyone who associates with the church would be confronted in their cultural Christianity, in their form of religion and their fake faith in the gospel. Or maybe he's mirroring the prophetic pronouncements of the Old Testament and simply speaking in the second person against the people who can't hear him, not so much for their benefit, but for the benefit of the believers. There's a lot of opinions about why he would write this and who he would write it to I think we can lose a little bit if we sit and split hairs over trying to figure that out because here's what I think. At the heart of it, it doesn't matter. The pronouncement is the same. The condemnation he calls out, the prophetic judgment that he places doesn't change based on the audience, the proximity the audience has to the church, or even the time in which it's spoken. For as much has changed from that day till now, this is still true. If you give your life to accumulating the world's wealth, you can, sure, you can be sure it will end in misery, not joy. So beware. Beware. So every, every week, James' words have applied directly to Christians. It doesn't seem to be so this week. It seems to be that he's calling the non-Christian to a place where he is confronted with the reality of his sin. Christian, understand this. Until we can come face to face with the reality that we are hopeless, we won't turn. The difference between a Christian sitting in this room and a non-Christian sitting in this room is that in some way the Christian has confessed they are absolutely needy. That they are absolutely dependent. That they are absolutely broken. That they have loved other things other than, more than, instead of the creator who created and then chose to be their savior. Every gospel proclamation must start in this place. And so what James is doing is not just simply being a jerk for the sake of being a jerk and speaking hard words. James is confronting people so that they would hear his warning and potentially heed its call. So, so, so recognize this. Rec recognize this, that as I talk today, I, 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 seek to, I seek every week to bring the the thrust of the passage. I seek to let the passage set the tone and, and determine who I speak to. 
And so as we start this morning, much of it is going to be an evangelistic effort in the sense of I'm seeking and hopefully will be calling potentially anyone within earshot to recognize their competing affections, to recognize their idols that they might turn from them and trust in Jesus Christ. But Christian, don't think that there's not an application for you. The truth is, is that while this is condemning non-Christians, it's hindering the fellowship of the Christian. It hinders our fellowship with the Father. It, it, reduces, it reduces the joy we get to enjoy when we, the, the joy we get to feel, the peace and the contentment that's to come when we have trusted Christ and we're following Christ and we're living in obedience to Christ. And so as we get to the end, you'll hear that there is clear application for us. But, but as we start, as we begin, I would encourage you, pray. Pray for those who may sit among us who have followed after a form of religion. That their eyes would be open, that their hearts would be stirred, and that they would lay down their idols. No, no, no. Don't, don't. That they would quit bothering with their idols. That they would quit looking at them, that they would quit being enticed by them, that they would quit being... Uh, mesmerized with them and that they would turn and trust in Jesus Christ. Because that is the only hope we have. But James doesn't just profess this judgment. He just doesn't prophesy this judgment. He tells us why the judgment's coming. And he starts in, verse cha- in, in chapter 5, verse 2. He says, Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and, you and, and will eat your flesh like fire. This world's wealth is frail, it rots, and it rusts. It, it is not eternal. Brothers and sisters, we cannot buy eternity with finite, limited gifts. It will never do for you what it promises to do for you. Non-Christian Your clinging to the world's wealth is leading you to condemnation because there will come a point where those things will be worthless. He says that they rot. It's short-lived. It's like the tomato in the refrigerator. No, no, No matter what you do, that tomato will rot. By its very nature, in this world, it will rot. One day you'll open up your refrigerator and that tomato that you intended to use for your hamburgers is going to have mold and it's going to be squishy. And it's actually what tends to happen is that they begin to leak their juices out all over the refrigerator that you then have to clean. They're disgusting. They putrefy. Good thing nobody's sitting in that front row. I don't know if you just saw that, but they'd have got a shower. The world's wealth... Is frail. He says it's moth eaten. You just think about this. It's so weak, it's so frail that even a moth can destroy it. You thought about that? What, what, what are the, I, don't, I don't know. I, I know a lot of people that are scared of bugs and all kinds of stuff, but I, most of those people, unless it's hyper, unless it's really bad, moths don't even scare. Moths are not a big thing. Typically. They don't bite us. They don't hurt us. By its very nature, the world's wealth is weak. 
even a moth can bring it to ruins. And even the most lasting of the world's wealth, like gold and silver, James says it rusts. Now, there's a lot of people that say, oh, well, James just, he's not smart enough to understand that gold doesn't really corrode, that gold and silver don't really, they they don't really rust in that way. No, they knew that then. He's making a point. He's proving his point. Gold and silver are not enough. They are not treasure they are not they are not precious enough they are not lasting enough they are not valuable enough in any way to buy us anything other than what this world might have to offer they will never buy eternity but it's not just the nature of the wealth that that brings and, and makes this judgment certain it's the very fact that they begin to be evidence against us And they burn our flesh. This world's wealth is frail and rots and rusts while it condemns and defiles. The pursuit of wealth is such a natural thing. We don't even recognize we're doing it. We're just going to work, trying to get ahead in the world, just trying to provide a comfortable living. Just, Just need that promotion so I can... So I can make that little bit of extra money so that I can feel a little more comfortable in this life while I wait on Jesus to come back. Just need a little bit more so that I can feel the joy that he promised me. It's such a natural thing. We're surrounded by it. At every turn, advertisers are taking advantage of the fact that we all long for the possessions that this world has to offer. Because as soon as we see someone else enjoying it, We want it. That's going to bring me the joy I so long for. But James' point demonstrates that acquiring it isn't always a measure of success. It's not always going to make us feel the way we think it would. The truth is, according to James' eternal perspective here, is that the accumulation of wealth, the blessing that it could be, isn't always a blessing. It actually might just be a you see just because you got money just because you got things that doesn't mean God's loved you that is not the measure of his love for you the cross is we can't determine that God has some way not loved us because we're poor we can't determine that God has loved us because we're rich if the question of love is, is up for grabs, it's not because you have wealth. It's not because you have these things. It's not because you have lots of possessions and feel financially secure. Your, the, the question of love is not answered by wealth. The question of love is answered by the cross. The world has gotten this so wrong. The world's wisdom suggests that in some way that, oh man, God must love you. You must be blessed. He must be for you. That's affirmation that you're following God's will. You're getting rich. That is a lie of the devil. That is an idolatrous heart seeking affirmation so it can cling to its idols. The world's wealth is frail and rots and rusts while it condemns and defiles the one who hoards it for selfish use. You see, brothers and sisters, this is, this is getting to the heart of the issue. Wealth isn't 
in question. It's the heart of the one who holds the wealth, who pursues the wealth, who accumulates the wealth, and who hoards it for himself. James says, in the last days, you have stored up wealth for yourself, that you have stored up and, 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 and sought in a selfish way to cling to your wealth. The, the idea here is, is, is that in the last days, in, in the Bible, you, you should know, in the Bible, the last days is, is not given to dispensationalists to say the time after the, the rapture. I'm not dispensational, so I, I don't know exactly how all that works out. But it's not given to the get, not given to the post millennials who say, um, "Oh well, once the whole world is evangelized, we'll enter into this golden era, and and, and that will be the last days." It's not given to the to, to the premillennial people who are waiting for Christ to come and establish his his reign on the earth, and and that's the last days. I would suggest, and I, I wrestle with this view in a couple, uh, well, at least one other. But, but it's the amillennial perspective that James is writing thinking, I'm in the last days. We are in the last days. The perspective of the Bible authors or the writers of the scripture in the New Testament was that they were living then in the last days. From the time of Pentecost, when the Spirit came down, they were looking forward to Christ coming back. It could happen at any moment. And here you are. Here you are in these last days. Storing up wealth that won't buy your eternity. Now, when you put it in that perspective, that sounds kind of foolish. But we're surrounded by a world, we live in a world that doesn't see it as foolish. Listen, if you insist on building your financial portfolio, and that is the goal of your life, then one day you will watch that portfolio burn up in front of you. If you insist to give your life to the building of your own kingdom to live in, one day you will watch it crumble. Your riches, your wealth, your little kingdom will, will not supply you with life. It will actually condemn you and it actually demonstrates your defilement. It will actually prove you are unworthy to stand before a holy God. Beware. The same frail, rotting, rusting wealth that won't last condemns and defiles the one who defrauds others of it. See, your hoarding of wealth condemns and defiles, yep. And so does your dishonest use of it. You hire somebody to do a job for you and you don't pay them? What does that say that you love most? What does that say about the heart of the person who doesn't pay? That's what he calls out here. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, those people who did work for you, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. When I was still working in aviation at Worldwide Aircraft, we had this, um, uh, we, we had a customer, sorry. He would, I was trying to think about how to say this politely because I'm feeling a little bothered by him in this moment. Don't know why. We had this customer. He was a prosperity gospel preacher who, who literally used his jet to go from place to place telling people if they had the right amount of faith or that they, if they loved God enough, they'd get rich. So frustrating to me. I, I, I didn't have the option, I didn't get the choice to say that we didn't want to work on his aircraft, but that was, 
that, that decision was above my pay grade, but I was of the pay grade that, that as he would come, I was the customer representative, and he would come and he would ask us for work, and everything we did for him, everything we did for him, because we learned him, was approved by him. We, didn't, we, we had him sign contracts. We had him, had him approve every discrepancy that we found on his airplane, everything we fixed. And then when we found things while we're in the middle of working, we would go back and say, do you want us to fix this? This is going to be the cost. And if there was some case where the cost was going to increase, we'd, we'd stop what we were doing and we'd go back to him again and say, hey, here's the problem. This is what it's going to cost. Regardless of the fact that everything was treated that way with him, he would come at the end of his project a, pro, a, a proponent. Now, now listen to me, a, a supposed Christian. Someone who's supposed to love his neighbor as himself would sit down and argue Every last cent. He was the hardest customer we ever had to get paid by. I would have rather dealt with FedEx, who we did deal with for a period of time, than, than him. And they were hard to deal with. Because it wasn't just one guy, it was many people. What I came to realize was that He wasn't prosperous because of his faith. In fact, with a measure of caution, I'd suggest he wasn't trusting the Lord at all. But he wasn't prosperous because of his faith. He wasn't prosperous because he loved God so much. He was prosperous because he loved his money so much and he would cheat people out of it so that he could keep it. Because I'm assuming, and this is an assumption, that if he did that with us, he did that with everyone else. It was so frustrating to me when we would go on a mission trip to, uh, I'll just use Nicaragua as an example. I heard this happen firsthand. And people in a position like us would go down and try to work a deal at a hotel so that we could save five or ten bucks. Because in some way we loved our money more than we loved those people. Brothers and sisters, to deal with one and defraud someone is an indication of something deep inside of us. That we'd rather have our money than care for those who surround us. And James is telling people like this, they are going to get what they deserve. And so while I feel frustration for this prosperity gospel preacher, I can't help but feel bad for that guy. Because for him, this is as good as it will ever get. He is enjoying some measure of wealth today and one day he'll watch it all burn that is something to be pitied and a reason to hear James words the same frail rotting rusting wealth that won't last condemns and defiles the one who finds his comfort and joy in it 
He, he goes on. He's, so behold the wages of, of labors in verse 4. Then in verse 5 he says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. It's been my experience. And I don't know that this is necessarily true. I, I don't have scientific stats for this. But, but it's been my experience. Most people don't just love like the paper money. Like I mean, I guess there's some of us that would maybe go cash in a thousand dollars so we could throw it on a bed and roll around in it and something. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's some of us out here, but most people, it tends to be, it seems to me, it's my observation that they don't love money as much as what they believe money provides for them or what money can buy. They, they love the security. They love the the comfort, the status. They love being envied by others. With wealth comes a sense of comfort, a, and an ability to indulge in the creature comforts of life, right? So if, if I have money, and I've, I've lived without, I've, I, I, I was a single parent for a period of time making just barely above minimum wage and having to provide for two uh, hungry little boys. I know what it is to, to live with not much. We, we relied on government assistance for a time because we had so little. I understand what that is. And I understand what it is to look at the lives of other people around me and think, oh, it would just be so much easier if I had this thing. And now living on the other side of that and having some measure of wealth, I have recognized that that doesn't always work. See, James burst that bubble. Having money doesn't make us the the master of our own destiny. Having a bit of wealth doesn't enable us to determine more about what happens in our life. It doesn't give us greater levels of control. It cannot accomplish anything it promises, except in a fleeting sense. He actually points out that in the pursuit of wealth, that the thing you're doing is fattening yourselves in the day of slaughter. And I found this kind of humorous, and so I thought I'd share it with you. In the words of Alec Mautier, a uh, 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 commentator that I'm reading from, he says, the picture is fearfully vivid. They are like so many unthinking beasts, luxurating in the, in, in the rich pasture day after day, growing fat by the hour and careless of the fact that each day, each hour brings the butcher and the abattoir nearer. I don't know what an abattoir is. You'll have to look that up. But I'm assuming butcher and they go together. So it's not good. The fattened cow would rather be skinny on the day of slaughter, I'm guessing. Only the thin beast, he goes on, only the thin beast is safe in that day. The well-fed has made itself ready for the knife. Listen, the, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, they are not all they are cracked up to be. All they're doing in the accumulation of wealth, all they're doing in the, in, in, in the gaining of greater wealth and pursuing more wealth and living and, and, and trying to find their comfort and their self-indulgence here is fattening themselves up that they might face condemnation. That they find themselves slaughtered. I don't think that's a worthwhile pursuit. And the same frail, rotting, rusting wealth that won't last condemns and defiles the one who loves wealth. I might say self more than neighbor. In verse 6 he says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now some would suggest that James is now referring to Christ. 
And that he is speaking to the fact that maybe some of these rich folks, some of these people who, have, who had gained their position, had, had worked to and used their power and used their wealth and used their, their uh, might here in this life to condemn and murder Christ who did not resist them. And I think there's a case to be made there. But in the original language and in the context, I think that that takes a bit of a bit of interpretation. Uh, uh, just a, I think it stretches it too far because James gives us no indication that he's moving away from speaking about the people who are being defrauded, who are being oppressed and being abused. In fact, Douglas Moo, who is another commentator I'm reading from, writes this. How can James claim that the rich have murdered innocent men? He probably has in mind the practical outcome of the actions that... uh, Sorry, let me start over. How can James claim that the rich have murdered innocent men? He has probably in his mind the practical outcome of the actions that the rich take against the poor to cheat them of their land and take away their gainful employment. The poor starve to death. You see, the idea here that that, that Douglas Moo is getting at is that this is a, a real way in which... They are with absolutely no concern, with no care, with no, no conscious thought of other people. They are simply taking and consuming and consuming more and consuming more with absolutely no concern for the, for the person who they consume from. No concern for the people in need. So that their livelihood, even their life is taken from them. And in the original language, it seems that this is the best understanding of what James is getting at. And I think, I think a, a good illustration of this is based off... Uh, it might, might, a, a good picture of this might be painted by a conversation I heard. It was in a, in a video that I recently saw uh, of, uh, of, a, of a man uh, in a discussion debating against abortion and a woman debating for her right to choose in which the young woman defended her right to choose based on really two things. If I have the baby, then I can't do what I need to do now, number one. I can't do what I need to do now, number two, to enjoy the life I want then. So because this baby that she was going to have would hinder her in her ability to gain the status, to to finish college, to to be able to enjoy a life of wealth and ease in the future, it did not deserve the right to live. She was more concerned with her own gain and accumulation of wealth and socioeconomic position than she was for the child that was growing in her womb. And when she finally confessed that she was arguing from a personal perspective, she absolutely felt no qualm or guilt over that at all. Brothers and sisters, the innocent die at the hand of the wealthy and powerful every day. Not just unborn children, it happens around the world every day. Because people are so consumed with their desire for the things of this world. Beware. Beware, if you give your life to, the accumulating the, to accumulating the world's wealth, you can be sure it will end in misery, not joy. If you insist on giving your life to the pursuit of wealth, to the growth of your own portfolio, to the building of your 
kingdom be warned. One day it's all coming crashing down. There is nothing you can do to stop it. The life of ease and comfort will meet a life of eternal suffering. Hear this call. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ as your only Savior. Pursue Jesus Christ as the one true King. So long as you're breathing, it is not too late. Today is the day. Repent and trust in Christ. Christian, don't be deceived by the world's wealth. Judgment is coming. Instead of pursuing it, the world's wealth, listen to Jesus' command. Matthew 6, 19 through 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Sound familiar? Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and still. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and still. Do not be deceived, Christian. Judgment is coming. Instead, follow Paul's example. Philippians 3, 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, in the context you've seen, in, in the context of that verse, he has just denounced any leverage he had, any position he had because of his Jewish lineage. But in the context that follows, he demonstrates that he's not just simply speaking about that, about that position or that perceived advantage because he talks about these people whose, whose appetites are ruled by their stomachs. The reality is, is he recognized that there is nothing worth more than having Christ. And then he'll tell us, follow this example. Christian, don't be deceived by the wealth of the world. Judgment is coming. Instead of pursue it, rejoice with Peter. In 1 Peter 1, 3-6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. It won't rot. It's undefiled. It will never, uh, it, it will never be moth-eaten. It will never be tattered. And it is unfading. It will never corrode. You have been given this in Christ. You have been woken to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's reserved for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I don't, I don't know that this is the case. I don't know that this is exactly what's going on. But it's, it's, it's so crazy to me as I think about the way that, that, that Peter and, and James parallel here. James starts off saying, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, because in his mind is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now Peter says, in this you rejoice, the reality that what's coming is better than what is now. Even though now you are being grieved by various trials. Maybe it's those same rotten rich folks, those same wicked wealthy people that James is condemning that, that are causing these problems. I don't know, but brother, sister in Christ... Do not be deceived by what seems so pleasant for them and so easy for them. Judgment is coming. Rejoice in this. You have an inheritance that will neither be moth-eaten, it will never rot, and it will never rust. Christian, don't be deceived by the world's wealth. Judgment is coming. Instead of hoarding the world's wealth, desire eternal 
treasures. Give your life to the pursuit of living for God's glory, establishing His kingdom, and building your eternal portfolio. That is a much worthy, much more worthy pursuit. Instead of defrauding others of wealth, do good with wealth. Live generously. Serve people with what the Lord has blessed you with. So often we think, oh, I got that raise. That means I can, I don't know, get a, get a little bit more data on my phone plan or, or go buy some more clothes and have a little bit more, more space in my budget. Is it not possible that God gave you a raise at your job so that you could give more to his work? And just so you know, I'm not thinking first and foremost about what you put in the plate at church. What if he blessed you with more so that you could bless others more? So that you could be more generous like he's generous. Instead of comfort in wealth, look for comfort from the Lord. Don't cling to the wealth that you can accumulate in this world. It will one day fail. Cling instead to the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that's kept not by you, not by your performance, not by your ability, but by God's power. Your seat is reserved at the table, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Your place card is there, and no one can move it because no one is more powerful than God. When you arrive at the wedding supper of the Lamb, when you walk into that feast, I don't know this is exactly what it's going to be, but I can almost picture the angel saying, Hey, Zane, Kurt, Linda, Sarah, come, your seat's right here. Nobody can change that. There's nobody that can take that away. There's nobody that can move it. There's nobody that can fold it up and knock it on the floor because it is kept there by the power of God, the same God that raised Christ from the dead. Instead of comfort in wealth, look for this comfort from the Lord. Instead of loving wealth, love God and others. He might say, well, I don't have a lot of wealth to, to love, so he's obviously not talking to me. In his commentary on the book of Luke, J.C. Ryle wrote lots of helpful words that have stuck with me since that time that we walked through it, the two and a half years that it took us to get through it. J.C. Ryle was extremely happy to me, or helpful to me. I don't know that he was happy. I've never talked to him. But he, he wrote lots of helpful words. Some that have stuck with me are these. It is possible to love money without having it. And it's possible to have it without loving it. You see, there's a lot of people in this room. In fact, I would suggest that every person in this room would fit into the terms of what it is to be wealthy in terms of where we sit in the world. Now, you may not be wealthy compared to the person sitting next to you, but that doesn't change that you got more, you got access to more, you, you have so much abundance that you're blinded by the abundance. It's not the having of it that's the problem. It's the loving of it. 
the pursuing it over everything else with a disregard for loving God and loving others. That's the problem. Even in a place where they have nothing, we walk into these villages in the middle of Africa, very primitive lives. Most of them have no running water. They do not have electricity. They are living off the land. And they're completely content in so many ways. Until we walk in, flashing phones, cameras, stuff that shines and is packaged nicely. And it's surprising. In just a few short trips... It wasn't, it wasn't us that they were happy to see in many cases. It was, what can you give me? What can you bring me? Because just like us, there's a love of stuff. There's a lot of cultural things happening with that, but, but let me just suggest at its core, it is the same desire to accumulate wealth even from a position of not having it. You don't have to have wealth to love it, so don't. And since I'd suggest we have it, let's not love it, but love God and love neighbor as ourselves. Let's pray.